Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ponder the legal and ethical ramifications of using genetics to help solve cold cases. We follow that with a piece on crowdfunding genetic research. We present another bit of old doggerel. We list five things you may not know about airline cabins. We encourage you to avoid cliches like the plague. And we acquaint you with a gentleman who can speak 24 languages. The old dog's conversation is with Stephen Makita a tireless crusader who has lived most of his life with a rare genetic disease that has barely slowed him down. Stay with us. Well, Paul. Yo. For the 83rd time. You're wondering what's on my mind. you what's on your mind. Ah. Well, as a matter of fact, one of our pod nuggets uh, in today's episode kind of piqued my curiosity. And that is about genetic crime solving. Uh, that there is a trend now for crowdfunding uh, to solve uh, murder cases. Yeah. And so the issue here is uh, if you are in a DNA database, is that privileged information or should it be accessible to uh, police? What do you think? I don't know. Um, an initial reaction is uh, how do people get information like that about a private individual? Well, there are two ways. There are two types of databases. Okay. If you've been convicted of a violent crime, you'll end up in a DNA database. Okay. Um, and this is controlled by the, the government, by police in particular. Um, the other thing is voluntarily. A lot of people uh, have submitted their saliva to a DNA database to build a family tree. Sure, ancestry. Right, and, right. and to make sure they really were related to George Washington, right? <laughs> and came over on the Mayflower. Uh, at the same time. Right. So the question uh, arises, I guess, is those people who donated their DNA sample to find out their family tree, suddenly those samples are being accessed for other purposes, Right. Right. Okay. So I would imagine that some people are going to be a little concerned that the original purpose has now been expanded to include a purpose they didn't intend. I, I guess I can understand that point of view. I don't agree with it. Oh, so you you wouldn't mind yourself being uh, used to determine a crime? I wouldn't, and for for a couple of big reasons. I'm I'm not right now in a government database, having never been convicted of a crime, mm-hmm. nor have I submitted voluntarily to find my family tree. I just something didn't interest me. So oh, okay. my DNA is, I think, a well kept secret. Yeah, that's what you think. <laughs> and now maybe that <laughs> could is be, could uh, be that is part of the issue. Maybe your DNA has been accessed somehow. Maybe through a lab test. You know, in the course of normal medical procedures uh, maybe your dna is in the system and you don't know well, about you it. know that that's a good point you know because we all go through medical testing yeah. uh, uh, blood is taken mm-hmm. uh, no telling how that ends up i think that there is sort of an underlying concern that uh, all information we submit can be uh, somehow misapplied 
somebody can use that for an unintended purpose, or that you didn't intend anyway. And so perhaps some people are afraid that once a person's DNA is used in helping to solve a crime, that having that DNA, now they'll be able to use it for something else. God knows what. I don't know either. Yeah. You know, you, it's just you, a, oh, they're going to use it for whoever steals my DNA steals trash. I, believe. <laughs> I don't think I'm related to anybody famous. Now that many of us are thinking about airline travel again, this is a good time to share some interesting facts about airline cabins. Oh boy. This pod nugget is from the Interesting Facts website. The level of cabin lighting has a purpose. Cabin lights dim during takeoff and landing so that it is easier to find an exit in an emergency. Also, dim lighting is more relaxing and can calm passengers with flight anxiety. The temperature is cold for a reason. The pressurized cabin during flight can prevent our bodies from getting enough oxygen, leading to fainting. Hmm. The warmer the temperature, the more likely this could happen. Hence, the cold is for your safety. The air is cleaner than you think. Oh, yeah. Airlines use a HEPA filter system, which is the same type of filtration used in hospital operating rooms. So you can breathe easy about breathing. Bathrooms can be unlocked from the outside. Did you know that, Jim? Mm. Flight attendants have a way to quickly unlock bathroom doors if a passenger has an emergency well occupied. The feature can also help children that are having trouble unlocking the door. And finally, there's a secret handrail along the bottom edge of the overhead storage compartment that can be used to steady yourself. Watch the flight attendants. They use this rail all the time. I thought it was the seat ahead of you. Yeah, that's the problem that I have with people. All of these features should give you comfort during your next flight, except the one about attendants bursting into the bathroom. (laughs) Well, avoid anything that sounds like you're in distress and wear clean underwear just in case. And what is that? What is it? The Mile High Club? Is that what they call it? Uh, Not while I'm in the bathroom. Are cliches overworked expressions that have been beaten to death? Or are they perhaps efficient ways to communicate a familiar idea? This pod nugget is from the Word Genius website. Well-chosen words are powerful, but cliches are so overused that they've lost their authority. It may be unfair, but we are judged by the clarity of what we say or write. Therefore, it is a good practice to limit the cliches we use in our communication. Or... Have cliches evolved because they are a concise way of expressing a thought? Are they trite or a form of shorthand? Well, six of one, half dozen of the other. The editors at the Word Genius website are trying to save us from a cliché overdose by suggesting 15 clichés that should be retired. Here they are. Writing on the wall. Whirlwind tour. Patience of Job. Never a dull moment. Sands of time. Paying the piper. March of history. Hook, line, and sinker. Long arm of the law. In the nick of time. Leave no stone unturned. Fall on deaf ears. Cool as a cucumber. Cry over spilled milk. And champing at the bit. It's probably impossible to eliminate all cliches from our communication, but it would certainly reflect well on us if we can minimize their appearance. Right, Jim, that's easy for you to say. Paul, I think cliches are good as gold. 
There is a new tool for solving difficult murder cases, crowdfunding for justice. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for March 27, 2022. Oh, we've all heard stories about identifying a killer through various DNA databanks like Family Tree DNA and GED Match. What you don't hear about are the murders that aren't solved because of a lack of funding. Processing of DNA evidence typically costs about $5,000. This means that police have to pick and choose the crimes most likely to be solved. This justice gap is being closed by an unusual source, crowdfunding. This grassroots interest in justice is fed by two forces, a generation that is comfortable with crowdfunding for social causes and the huge popularity of murder podcasts like Crime Junkie. It is an opportunity to participate in solving a real-life murder mystery. A startup genetics lab called Authorum has been one of the leaders connecting crowdfunding with unsolved crimes. The company created a website called DNA Solves to tell the stories of horrific crimes and unidentified victims. The company has received more than $400,000 in donations to help solve these crimes. For now... The trend to privately fund genetic crime solving appears to be beneficial, but there are critics who are concerned about civil liberty issues around genetic searches. Two states have already passed laws limiting forensic genealogy. We are sure to hear more about this in the future. Okay, I'll be waiting here. One of the main concerns for folks our age is our health. Fortunately, modern medicine has a lot of replacements for body parts that are wearing out. Knee replacements, hip replacements, ankle replacements, heart pacemakers, and so on. But unfortunately, there are things that can't be replaced. This brings us to the next addition to our lexicon of old doggerel. When you have replaced what you can in your body and other parts are now wearing out, we usually say that you're in declining health. Well, we'd like to suggest a replacement language. Let's call it running out of spare parts. That makes it seem more like a supply chain issue than a slippery slope. Good idea. A polyglot is a person who speaks several languages. A hyperpolyglot is a polyglot who speaks even more languages. Remember this useless distinction for the next pod nugget, which is from the Washington Post for April 5th, 2022. Vaughn Smith is a 46-year-old carpet cleaner. On days when there are no carpets to clean, he helps a friend install window tinting. Prior to that, he was a painter, a bouncer, a punk rock roadie, a dog walker, and a kombucha delivery man. He appears to be a modest, unexceptional person. Except he has a remarkable talent. He is a polyglot, or a hyper-polyglot, you decide. He speaks eight languages fluently and can carry on conversations in about 25 more. He understands that he remembers names, numbers, dates, and sounds far better than most people, but he is uncomfortable with all the attention that comes with his gift. Growing up, he felt like he didn't belong. Learning languages seemed to be a bridge to other people. While he was adept at picking up a new language, he didn't do well academically. 
After his high school graduation, he applied to a trade school, but wasn't accepted. So for the next 25 years, he tried on a lot of different jobs. At one point, he befriended a Paraguayan special needs teacher who explained the traits associated with being on the autism spectrum. It felt all too familiar to Vaughn. Maybe this is why he hadn't understood his teachers, why his attention drifted, why some adults thought he was rude. He knows he would like a more satisfying career, but he doesn't know where to look or the steps he needs to take to get a more formal, professional job. It's sad that Vaughn's gifts have not led to a better life. For now, he could take pride in brightening a person's day by conversing in their native language. For me, that would be English. (laughs) At age 66, Stephen Makita is one of the oldest survivors of spinal muscular atrophy. SMA is a rare progressive neuromuscular disease that causes difficulty with basic life functions such as breathing, swallowing, and walking. Despite his physical limitations, he has dedicated his life to disability advocacy. He spent more than 30 years as a Utah Assistant Attorney General championing protections for individuals with disabilities. Steve also contributed to the development of SMA treatment by acting as the FDA's patient representative for SMA. Thank you for joining us for a conversation today. Thank you for inviting me. Looking back at your undergraduate work, you had a double major in political science and religion. Those two don't seem to go together. Well, you're right. But they're all about words and interpretation and analysis of context. So they prepared me well for a career in law. I liked the challenge of a religion major because it helped me focus on the kinds of things that inform a scriptural kind of reading. And of course, poli-sci is kind of the go-to major for anyone who wants to go to law school or is contemplating law school. Not that anyone has ever, you know, been particularly enthusiastic about saying, yeah, guess what? I'm a political science major. (laughs) So it's kind of interesting that you took on the challenge of a double major, considering that, uh, I believe this is correct, that you were the first person uh, to graduate uh, from your program at Duke in a wheelchair. Is that right? Well, I was the first freshman ever to be admitted uh, in a wheelchair at Duke. There was a football player who was injured at Duke and who finished about a year before I got there. Mm. So I was the first ever admitted to Duke in a wheelchair. Wow. What do you think was the major challenge of those early years? The major challenge was going through my first major hospitalizations. So I had a very severe spinal curve that developed in my adolescent years. And at the age of 12, my spine was shaped in an S. And I looked very much kind of like a pretzel-shaped person. Hmm. I gained a lot of weight. My dad was an orthopedic surgeon, made the decision that if I was going to 
have any sort of quality of life that we would have to undergo a spinal fusion. So that was a scary proposition. Then six months after that surgery, I developed a very life-threatening dose of pneumonia. So I think that during those two hospitalizations, I had to come to grips that my body would present challenges from time to time. For our listeners, can you give us a vision of spinal muscular atrophy, which is your particular challenge? Yes, sir. So spinal muscular atrophy is a condition that attacks the motor nerves. I have a deletion in a very critical protein called survival motor neuron one. I also have survival motor neuron two, but I had a colossal event upon birth, a lot of that critical gene that is so integral to developing and maintaining muscle strength. So as a result, unlike your muscles in your body, they hear shouts. My nerves hear whispers. And as a result, over time, those whispers are no longer heard and the muscles atrophy or weaken over time. Now, the most incredible thing happened three days after my 66th birthday this year, I started taking a drug called Evrisd, which was developed for my disease. And I can tell you gentlemen that it was an immediate change. I started breathing better, taking deeper breaths. I could swallow my drinks without choking. I had stronger control in my upper body. I could turn my head more than I have in 20 years. My tongue rolled back into my bottom of my mouth and I could better articulate words that I was struggling with articulating. So it's really been a miracle drug. And I believe very passionately in the promise and hope of precision medicine. Are you still practicing uh, law? I retired from the Utah Attorney General's office after 39 years last August. But I haven't really retired because I'm still advocating every day. I work about six to seven hours a day. I serve on 10 national committees and councils dealing with clinical trials, rare diseases, and tearing down social determinants of health, trying to bring more health equity to communities of color around the nation. There are too many people who, because of the color of their skin, they've been denied treatments and care, basically where they live, how they live, and because they look differently than I do. 
And so I'm still very active and I feel motivated. I feel like my real passion can now be my focus. Whereas for the last 20 years, I've been splitting my time between representing state agencies at the attorney general's office and doing the patient advocacy on the side. Steve, your advocacy focuses on underserved populations. Have you seen any progress over the years? Of, of course. You know, the Americans with Disabilities Act, when it was passed by Congress in 1990, I never imagined that a piece of legislation like that would ever be enacted during my lifetime. That drew attention to many of us with disabilities who have challenges maintaining jobs or even getting hired to do a job. And I think that we still have a long way to go. A lot of folks our age, Stephen, encounter late in life disabilities. Do you have some advice for people our age that um, suddenly have these physical challenges? When you think about a disability, whether it's an older one like I have or a newer one from a new condition, you have to decide within yourself, is it going to embitter you or ennoble you? And that's a personal choice. And you've got to choose that every day. I remember during my hospital days, sometimes I would absolutely want to give up. And my mother would say, there is nothing I can tell you today that will make you feel better. And I'm going to let you alone because life is unfair sometimes. But tomorrow, I'm going to march back into this hospital room and we're going to start this fight all over again. And that attitude has carried me through many, many nightmarish, terrifying moments. It's not easy to live with a disability, whether that's chronic or whether that's something that's lawful in your life. But that doesn't have to change you. It might change what you look like on the outside, but it's what's inside of me that's never changed. I always tell people, I'm 66 years old, but I swear to you, my spirit inside of me still feels like I'm 25 years old. I have the same passion, the same love for life that I did when I was in law school. I love my life because I have hope, not hopelessness. I am hopeful about my life and my future, no matter whether that ends next week or in 10 years. I still have hope that there is meaning and purpose in my life. Very eloquent. Thank you for that answer. And also, it's obvious that as an attorney, you get paid by the word. <laughs> <laughs> 
what I always have said. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, can you direct our listeners to any resources about clinical trials or coping with disabilities? Uh, They can go to clinicaltrials.gov. They can also go to FDA's page on uh, participants uh, that gives a great overview of uh, clinical trials. Anyone with a disability or disease or condition should start locally in finding out what support groups are available and to work through those local organizations who have information to better equip those of us with these conditions or diseases or new traumas and new diagnoses to better enable us to make decisions for our treatment. Remember, we're in control of our bodies. We get to choose what kind of life we want to live. We really appreciate your being a participant here, and I promise you that we will do our best to communicate your message. It's been an honor to be with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.